0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles.
1: Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of StageCraft, we're talking about the new off-Broadway play Sanctuary City. It's the latest work by the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Martina Mayok and its world premiere production at the New York Theatre Workshop had played just one week of previews before the coronavirus pandemic shut down the workshop along with every other theatre in the city on March 12th. Later in the episode, I'll talk to Jeremy Blocker, the theater's managing director, about how the workshop and nonprofit theaters like it are grappling with the shutdown and working to sustain their organizations. But first, I speak with Mayok, whose plays include Queens, Ironbound, and the Pulitzer-winning Cost of Living, about her experience so far with Sanctuary City and with the shutdown, and her hopes for the show's future. Hi, Martina. Thanks for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so... Tell me the the story, uh, your coronavirus story with Sanctuary City. The the play had just started performances the week before, and then suddenly you had to stop. Tell us a little bit about what that experience yeah. was like.
2: We were we were about a week and a half into previews, so we had a, also about a week and a half until opening. Actually, last night was supposed to be our opening night. Mm. Uh, so the cast uh, and the team and I got together on Zoom and we raised a glass to each other. It was it was really nice to do. Yeah, um, yeah I wore my opening dress and a tiara because I could. So, <laughs> yeah, the dress came in the mail, so I'm as well wear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we were we we've been having a great time. It was actually I, I I don't remember a time that I was happier and more fulfilled and and had my my soul as fed as the the process of putting the play together with this group of people and so everything was going so well yeah. i was I, you know I, I was joking that like at some point the shoe's going to drop and i guess it was a global pandemic that was
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah
2: was that good uh, but yeah we we on thursday the 12th um, we were supposed to have rehearsal but we were we were very far along um, in, in in rehearsing the show so we just had to call it to give the actors a break um, and um, the night before was when it was revealed that the Broadway Usher had, uh, had tested positive for coronavirus, and so we were all a little bit like, oh, no, what's this gonna, what is this going to mean? Uh, and so the, ne- the next afternoon at 2 o'clock, uh, the workshop called me and, and Rebecca and gave us the news about the suspension. And you know, since then it's been it's been the process of grieving. Where I was bargaining at first and asking like, "What if we just play two more shows? What if we get you know critics in and all these things?" They were like, "We we can't do it." Um, and uh, so, me, our show, Sanctuary City, and Endlings, the other show that New York Theatre Workshop had, also were right. They're just closed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And what do you have a sense of why? it was so satisfying for you and what was so great about the experience? What, what really, uh, you know, nurtured your soul as you were saying? I
2: think it was just, I think it was mainly the people, the, mm. it was just, I feel like I would found my, my team, my collaborators on the show. Um, the director, Rebecca Frecknell, um, was wonderful to work with and I was so proud of the production that she built around the, the, the show. And, Everybody was very loving and kind and talented and respectful, and it was just—it was going great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the people. It was the people.
1: What? Yeah, and what were you learning about the show itself? Because this was the first time you were getting to see it on its feet, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. This is also the first. Um, no, I, I guess not true. I was going to say it's the first time we did a show without doing it out of town, but, this, but that's not true.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I mean, I, I, the, the play is um, a slight slight kind of departure from the other plays i there's no set um right. it's open ended to uh, about how to um, represent the world it's um a lot of a lot of sort of moments and memories um where language is the 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 to understand what, what's going on and um so i was like i have no i just had no idea what the world was going to look like and um, and th- it feels like this is this this is the ultimate production for the or the, con- the ultimate container for the play was what Rebecca had created and the designers as well.
1: Yeah, and what tell us a little bit about the for the people who didn't get a chance to uh, see it or read it. I had a chance to read it before I talked to you. What tell us about what the play is about and what inspired it for you?
2: Sure, um, it's about um, the lifelong friendship between two. Uh, they they meet um, they meet in third grade. That's uh, it's a uh, two friends, w- both who are immigrants, um, one becomes naturalized and the other is undocumented and um, the two decide to get married so the other, the und- undocumented friend can stay in the country and pursue his education. Um, and and then some surprises along the way, as you read. Right. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd started writing this play in March 2017 while I was working on another play called Queen's. Uh, which has a dreamer character in it, and um, mm. while I was writing that play, uh, I kept these sort of memories and of uh, and and people that I that I grew up with kept kind of kicking around in my mind. And I, I went to bed one night um, uh, after doing some rewrites on Queens, and got up around three in the morning uh, with with this basically this play um, in my mind. I and I got up out of bed, I started writing what I thought were notes for the play and realized I was just writing the play. And about three days later, I had the first draft of the, of sanctuary city. Uh, So it came out kind of the the way that basically the way that you, that you read it. And since then, I've just been sort of fleshing out moments and, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's personal. It's close to me. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a dear, a dear play to me.
1: Yeah. And uh, it was after the, the show was, canceled that first night on Thursday, the next day you guys got together and uh, recorded it for yeah. tell us about that decision. And what's the, have you watched that? What will, what will be done with that? Will we get to see that? Or what's the, what happens next with that?
2: Yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, everything was, everything happened so fast. Yeah. Uh, after, yeah, so at like two o'clock we were like, okay, for 30 days were suspended, which is, which is essentially our whole run. Well, April right. 12th was supposed to be our last um, our last show there was a, a the possibility for extension for a week longer um uh but that's you know that was that was our run um and uh the so then that, that uh once I got the phone call at two, I rushed down to the workshop where Rebecca was um and we started trying to come up with a plan for how we could salvage the show in some way and our the, our set is still up in the theater, so yeah. if you know if all things uh false things work out soon I, it, we're, we'll just go right back into the theater and, and um put the show up mm. um, we may have the theater for another month after because potentially it's the, something would be happening with another show with another show in that, that's coming into that space we're not sure mm. um but uh, right now our set is still up and so we could we could put the show back up but um as we were trying to figure out what else we could do to salvage the show um, I forget who thought of the idea to work it might have been jeremy blocker who thought of the idea to, to record it um, the idea was to have it be archival um, and uh, and as and as a backup in case nobody was able to see the show in case you weren't able to bring it back up for for some reason then maybe we would release it right now I haven't seen the show I don't I don't know what or I haven't seen the film. I I don't know what the plan is for now because I think we're still hoping that we might be able to share this in the ver- in the way that it was meant to be on, which is on stage. Yeah. Sort of. See, I'm glad that it, that it exists.
1: Yeah. And what feels uh, what about the play feels particularly urgent to you? And uh, it sounds like it has felt urgent to you all along to sort of depict on stage about these characters and about the kind of issues they confront.
2: I think like m- most of the most of the Past play the the plays I've been writing recently. It's it's um, uh, largely a group of people that um, are dealing with things in their personal lives that are that are completely linked to the political. And there there are two people whose the the course of their lives depends on policy around immigration. Um, this play the play is set in two thousand one to two thousand six. So this is before. This is before DACA, which was twenty twelve, um, uh, and and you know there's other, there's other there's other issues that are also um, working on the characters that is sort of a surprise throughout the play, but that's mm-hmm. also the 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 sort of the the opportunities they uh, have to move their lives forward in the way that they want to don't really happen until many years after, and and so it's a it's a glimpse of people who um, uh, who've who have been deeply impacted by, by immigration
1: policy. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, your description of the set that was unusual, you said for you, but also I was aware of reading it. Um, while I was reading it, I was aware that you were making some choices about how you describe the actors and the casting choices, uh, that I maybe would not have been aware of just watching it, because you have some sort of specific guidelines to the kind of actors you're looking for, um, but you also kind of leave it open ended to sort of make it as inclusive as possible. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that choice.
2: Yeah, I think sometimes it's um, uh, like, for example, with with cost of living. Um, yeah. In that, in with the with my casting note, there it was actually it's more inclusive to be more restrictive in that casting note where I say mm-hmm. you. Like please cast disabled actors, um, and in this and in Sanctuary City, it's it's more open because I think that one that actually is more inclusive. Um, it asks for, for casting to be um, uh, I, I don't specify what countries the characters are from on purpose, uh, so that it leaves it open for different versions of the story. Um, but there's there's a restriction that no character can be Western European or Canadian. Um, or have or come from a country with greater liberalism than the United States. Um, so because I think there's many versions of the story, I think, you know, the two, the two, the three main characters really could be could be um, Venezuelan, Eritrean, Ghanaian. They could be um, they could be from many places and there's and there's many versions of the story. And so that's what that's why I, I'd hope that it would be it would offer more opportunities for for actors and for the, the story.
1: Yeah, did that make it harder for you to write at all in terms of because uh, you sort of I, I noticed as you were writing you l- left a lot of details sort of unsaid or to the imagination or to to be filled in by the production not so much by your words. Did that what was that like for you as a writer to sort of balance that?
2: I I actually love limitations like that. I find them very, uh, they're, they're useful for my creativity. I think when there's a little bit of a, uh, obstacle, I, I, I have to get a little bit more creative. There's, there's, you know, there's certain things I wasn't able to, t- or I chose not to talk about. It. Um, like I, in, the characters never speak about how they feel about the countries from which they come and the, their family and th- they talk with their families. Um, but they obviously have feelings and and connections to their to the country that they were born in. But I just limited that as I limited other things that they might have talked about in their lives, but didn't in the play, just because you always select stuff when you're writing, when you're writing um, sto- plays. Right. So, it's yeah, I, I'm, I was worried at first that that might be too much of a limitation, but I think it ended up. I hope <laughs> we'll find out if I think when this yeah. play, when this play, I hope I hope, you know, um, Premieres, but I think it, yeah, I think it didn't affect it that much.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned that this felt a little different from uh, some of your earlier work. Tell it, where does it fit in then, in your view, in sort of in the arc of kind of the plays you write and the kind of topics you deal with as a writer?
2: I think it's the 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 form was a little bit more. I I, mm. I, was, I was already going in that direction of playing with memory and um, having a lot of having it very much language based and almost a kind of poetic language. Uh, and so I just went a little further that way. And, and, um, I think the fact that I was, I was able to write it in three days makes me feel like maybe I should continue this path. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really good. Is, yeah. that,
1: is that, is that unusual it, for you? Is that unusually so fast brutal. for you?
2: I mean, there's, there's certain, I wrote Ironbound in five days and I wrote this in three days, but, but mm. like living took about, I don't know, a year, year and a half, maybe two of just trying different things and, Queens, I still, I still am working on that play. Oh, uh, yeah, gonna, I'm gonna, go back and uh, work on that play some more. But um, no, I, 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 really, I hate writing. I hate it so much. It's <laughs> difficult, um, but I, I do it so I can be in the rehearsal room. Uh, mm. And so this was, this was uh, not as painful <laughs> of a writing process right. as it usually is for me.
1: Yeah, and in has the uh, the shutdown and the sort of life on pause that we are all living right now here in New York City um, is that has affected all our lives in so many ways. Are there other productions of yours that have or other work that you're working on that has gotten sort of, you know, upended by the kind of shift in life that we're all experiencing right now?
2: Yeah, there's a few productions that have been either canceled or postponed or, or sort of in limbo. A lot of um, productions of Cost of Living hmm. um, that that so I know, some are being postponed until later, and some I I, I don't I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah no, but most of the stuff in theater is pretty much stopped. Yeah, stalled. Yeah. a few productions of Ironbound. Um, but the television and film keeps keeps going.
1: Okay.
2: You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm not in not in rooms. I'm sort of doing uh, I'm I'm doing things that I usually would be doing in isolation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just you know, writing a script here and there. Um, but that that's continued. But the theater has heartbreakingly stopped. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the film and TV stuff that you're working on is that is there anything you can talk about yet or are these sort of self-generated projects? Tell us about those.
2: I'm not even sure. I think I think I think I can. Um <laughs> one is one is a film that I'm doing as a a, a book adaptation or oh. rather a film adaptation of a, of a book. Um and um another one is I'm creating an original series for uh HBO based on based on my play Queens. Right. Um, that's what I've been, that's what I'm working on right now, mostly as I'm, as I'm waiting anxiously for the theater return.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And are you enjoying that process of taking something that you've written in one form and moving it over to another?
2: It feels very new and different to me. So I'm Mm -hmm. still kind of, I, I, I haven't, I don't know if I've, I've figured, I've quite figured it out, but I, I, you know, it's language is what's most, Compelling for me to to write in, or I've gotten used to writing with, with language, and now I'm mm. switching over to to images, which is weird because I used to, you know, as as um as a person who I was English was their second language for a while. Like you yeah. learn visually, and yeah. I had more access to film and TV than I did theater for most of my life, and so it would I would have thought I would have gone into TV and film as opposed to theater, but I so loved the fell in love with the process of making theater, making plays, being in rehearsal. That um, was where I kept. Why I kept, kept and keep returning to the to the theater. So far, I haven't been able to be in in a, a room right. in that way like I am in the theater, uh, doing television and film. Maybe maybe if I were, I would you know feel more comfortable. But right now, it's mostly me in isolation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, do you have a sense of how winning the Pulitzer Prize sort of in, affected uh, your career and how people uh, and the work? how people consider the work you do?
2: I don't think it's changed things all that much, to be honest. There's, there's something which I, there's something actually kind of comforting to, in that as well, Mm. because it means that, um, that doesn't mean that I have to, that, that I stop. Um, I, i obviously it was like a huge dream to, to uh, most playwrights would, would dream of this, this award. And, um, and I, and I guess I thought, Oh, if I, if I, if I got it, that would make me feel finally okay, <laughs> like I finally belong. Yeah. and um, and it didn't. <laughs> I have the same worries, anxieties, and also the same concerns and the same. Loves and um, and it didn't. It, yeah, the, the work continues, and so there's something very comforting to me about about that as well. There's mm. there's there's certain doors that I've been pushing on for a long time that have become slightly more ajar. Like I mm. can access certain meetings and things, I think, because of because of the prize. But I don't think it's really changed things all that all that much. And and actually, for cost of living, uh, there there haven't been that many productions of the play, mm. um, and I. I Maybe people don't like to play, which is fine um but maybe because of the the my casting requirements um uh yeah and, and like that's just and I guess that's that's fine that's something that's I'm not willing to change to to change that so maybe maybe I hope that um the Pulitzer would encourage more people to consider the play and consider the actors for the roles in that play um than they might if it didn't have the prize,
1: yeah who do you consider your biggest influences uh as a writer
2: my mom mm-hmm. <laughs> she's not a writer but i just yeah. i think I, I i find her life story and which is very inspiring um and the things that she's gone through and persevered mm.
0: um
2: writers i i i'm in love with Connor mcpherson and dominique moriso and mm. um uh august wilson lynn Nottage, people um uh, Stephen think, the like i, I people who I feel like are um, uh, right with humanity and love for their characters um, is what I, what I really respond to. Yeah.
1: And do you have a sense of where your ideas come from? Like what specifically tends to spark a new play in you?
2: It tends to be something that I'm, there'll be something that I'm going through that I don't have, uh, that I won't even really understand until I've gotten to opening night. Basically. I think I write, to understand what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking, um, uh, so so there there'll be something that's percolating personally, usually that bumps up against something I encounter in the world, or I encounter in another another piece of art or um, an article. Who who knows? There's some something from the outside will 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 bump against the personal, and then um, get my imagination going in the, in the theatrical world and uh, and um, but they usually but it usually is something. Pretty personal, uh, either from the people I know or something I've experienced myself.
1: Do you write with particular actors in mind? I
2: I don't. I think actually, I I I would find that limiting. I think I would because I would I would write to their strengths and not be able to. I I write I write um, for certain people and composites of people that I know, but not actors specifically.
1: Mm. Is there a subject or uh, topic or anything that you haven't gotten to tackle yet in your writing that you intend to?
2: I'm, I'm excited to find out what that is. I think that, mm. that I'm, I'm like, I'm actively like, I have my palms open. <laughs> I'm <laughs> waiting for this sort of this other thing. I keep returning to um, issues of economics and uh, class and immigration. Um, be, I, I, you know, it wasn't even, but, but that wasn't even necessarily a conscious, decision i i when i first started writing i was just writing my family and my friends and then people from the outside would 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 hear the plays and go oh you're writing about immigrants and poor people and i was like i guess but
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah the people i know and myself or my mom and my friends um uh yeah. so that kind of came from the outside but i hmm. i think i continue to in in the one in some theme or form or another i'll keep writing about the people that i that i love
1: yeah and what are you doing to stay sane as we're all homebound? Oh
2: god. <laughs> you're <good>. you're <laughs> writing
1: for one thing. You're right you're working on a TV show. I
2: don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like writing. Um, I go out for about probably an hour half hour to an hour. Luckily I live right across the street from a park which is good so I can look out the window and there's green. Right. Uh, I'm in Manhattan right now but um, across the street from a park. Um mm. uh, I, the other day I was listening to Cuomo tell us it's going to be okay while doing yoga. And I was like, this is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: you look
2: outside yourself at yourself. And I was like, this is, this is that time in my life where I did yoga. to, to <laughs> <laughs> be okay. So, yeah, no, a little bit of drinking, but like not that much. <laughs> yeah,
1: Yeah. You can't start down that path too early. Right. With the drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah rationing my (laughs) food. Yeah,
1: right, of course. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for chatting and uh, I look forward to being able to see uh, Sanctuary City and uh, your other plays as soon as we are able to get back into the theater. Um, Thanks very much, Martina. Nice to talk to you. You guys, great
2: to talk to you too. Thank you.
1: That was Martina Mayock, the writer of Sanctuary City. Next up, I speak to the managing director of New York Theatre Workshop, Jeremy Blocker, right after the break. And I'm back with the Managing Director of New York Theatre Workshop, Jeremy Blocker. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, theatre is an art form that is all about large gatherings of people and artists and audience members sharing the same space. And so it feels like this shutdown has disrupted basically every single thing we know about uh, how theatre works and how, uh, how the businesses we have built around it uh, work what for you uh are sort of the top concerns as you're sort of juggling all of these you know many kind of disruptions
0: i mean i think the top concern for anybody in my job is uh, the people that we're responsible for and making sure that they you know the artists the technicians the front of house staff the full time staff that they are as well taken care of through this whole thing as they possibly can be um and then i think the second priority which is high up there is how do we continue to connect with audiences and um you know we i i think anybody in the theater who tells you that it's more important than uh public health is is probably kidding themselves they're definitely kidding themselves um, but, uh, we think what we do is pretty important and that it's sustaining, uh, emotionally and intellectually for audiences. And so how do we continue to connect with them, um, and make sure that we're raring to go on the other side of all of this and still here to deliver, um, you know, the experiences and the connections with artists that they value so highly.
1: Yeah. And what are you, th- those were two, two big questions that you just asked. What are you finding the answers to those questions are, or do you even know yet?
0: Well, um, you know, I think we have been trying along with a lot of our sister theaters in the off-Broadway community to make sure that we are um, responsible with all of our finances so that we can keep paying people. I mean, that's the most important thing. Um, We do not have such a strong social safety net in this society um, as to suddenly stop work for every freelancer um, and staff member uh, and expect that they're just going to be okay on the other side. So I think that's We've done what we can at the workshop. Um, you know, we had to, in addition to Martinez' play, uh, Sanctuary City, um, we also closed that same night um, uh, another production that we were running um, uh, called Endlings by Celine yep. Song, directed by Sammy Cannell. Yep. Um, and we also you know, had to suspend a lot of our artist workshop programming and our work with uh, teaching artists in New York City public schools. And, you know, our first priority was figuring out a way to pay those folks. And we did. Um, and we're paying all of the scheduled work uh, through the end of those runs. Um, and that's true for our artists. It's true for our technicians um, and our front of house teams. Um, and we're continuing to pay our staff also through this. Um, and, you know, nobody nobody should get an award uh, for doing it. Obviously, it's the least that we can do, and we're lucky to have the resources and the community support to be able to do it. Um but it's it's a scary time. It's you know we we went within from you know within the span of a couple of weeks from looking at a balanced budget to looking at a seven figure deficit. Um, And that's scary for a little off-Broadway theater company.
1: Um,
0: So you know I, I think we answered the question uh, in line with our values, that was immediately in front of us, um, and with full support of our board um, and other members of our community. Um, and now, in order to continue to answer that question and make sure that we're, um, you know, financially sound on the other side, we're cutting expenses uh, wherever we can and looking to um, the kindness of members and donors uh, who yeah. are um, expressing their willingness to, um, you know, donate their tickets or increase their annual donation to help us through this. Um, which has been amazing and incredibly moving. Um, and then on the programming side, we're both strategizing about um, how we return, how and when we return to live programming, the thing that we uh, live in-person programming, I should say, the thing that we love and believe in. Um, and uh, we're also looking at launching a series of um of unique online programs, um, so that we can keep audiences and artists connected through this time, uh, as well as looking at options about streaming some of the work that we have captured.
1: Yeah. And the, you started to allude to this with, with your talk about board, your board and your members, the workshop is a nonprofit, uh, yes. Broadway theater, and which puts you in a sort of a different, uh, boat from sort of the commercial Broadway productions that are, that are going up. These does being, as you mentioned, a nonprofit with sort of a strong community and a strong sort of circle of donors and members and board members, does that, uh, has that been uh, helpful in this, in this moment? And are there ways in which it leaves you particularly vulnerable, vulnerable as an organization?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think those are good questions. And the answer to both is yes. Um, Right. It, it, it's, there are lots of reasons why this is my chosen profession and why I work in the off-Broadway not-for-profit community. Um, I think there is really no greater opportunity for theatrical innovation and there's no more supportive network of very serious and passionate theatergoers to experience it. Um, and that that community is what we are leaning on and relying on to see us through this, um, yeah. along with the you know, the, the generosity and the understanding of our artists and our staff in coping with challenge after challenge after challenge. Um, and I think, you know, I cannot imagine, and I've been in conversation with a number of my friends who work on the commercial side of things. And of course they have great teams and, um, incredible artists that they're working with too. And I'm, I don't mean to suggest that there isn't a, a, a there's certainly a strong Broadway theater community. Um, but in terms of, ticket buyers it's it's a commodity and i think the 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 virtue of uh the not for profit model is that while we do sell tickets and while there is a certain amount of uh of rule of the marketplace um you know we're organized for a different purpose we're literally organized not for profit and that different purpose is to create art and that i think has an effect of creating a community that values it beyond um, what it could ever deliver monetarily right? right on the flip side of that we produce at a pretty high level in a 200 seat theater <laughs> there's just no way that we can make up um, lost revenue uh, and particularly lost contributed revenue um, by selling more tickets and if we were suddenly to decide that you know the answer to a crisis like this is to go and program, You know, wildly differently than we've been programming in the past. Uh, You know, we might sell a few more tickets, we might earn a little bit more at the box office, but ultimately, we'll be eroding that community that we've spent forty years building.
1: Right. Yeah. And at the same time, in addition to these two off-Broadway productions that uh, you that have since been shut down, you were also uh, the stop point on the way to Broadway for a show called Sing Street that uh, you know has also been affected by the shutdown. How does that? Is that, is that also a, a factor in your considerations because shows that go that like, you know, stop at a place or originate at a place, depending, uh, rent is probably the highest profile example for you guys. Um, then, you know, feeds revenue back to, back to the organization.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, so we had two shows that we premiered, uh, that are, that were, well, Sing Street never had its first preview. Mm. Hasn't had its first preview yet is what yeah, I would exactly. To say. Exactly. Good.
1: That's a great thing to say.
0: Um, but also, Hadestown uh, had its world premiere with us back right, in 2016. Of yeah, yeah, right. Um, I, th- I don't know I don't know that we would say it is yet higher profile than rent. I still think right. your assessment is correct. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that money is not insignificant. I mean, a huge part, I am very, very lucky um, to be a steward of an organization that predates my tenure with it by 34 years. And over the course of those 34 years, we learned, we had ups and we had downs, and we learned a lot of lessons. And one of the lessons... Um, that we learned was to lock away um, commercial royalty revenue from successful productions like Rent or Once or Peter and the Starcatcher and to build up reserves so that in a moment like this, we still have to be careful and we have to be conservative, but we don't have to be as reactive as some of our sister theaters who haven't been fortunate enough to have that kind of commercial success. And so, you know, we... Hadestown Town has been spinning off significant revenue for us, um, sure. but it's not—it's not money we were spending. It's money we were staving away for a rainy day, and boy, is it raining! <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think, of course, you know, I would rather be adding to those reserves than depleting them at this moment. But I think our biggest concern um, around those two shows is that—that that the commercial model that they're on allows them to reopen on the other side of this, that the artists who have been working on those shows, I mean, Amber Gray is still in that show. Right. Uh, it's still in Hadestown. Um, and she was in a workshop of it. God, that must have been 2014 or 2015. I mean, she's been working on that show for a long time, and and it's you know not just for Amber, but for all the artists and um, producers who took a chance on that. We hope that um, it come Broadway comes roaring back strong, and that they're all put back to work, and 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 that more money is put in their pockets because you know we don't aspire. Broadway is not the end, right? In 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 we've had a we've had a nice track record over the last couple of years, sure. which is which is great. Um, but in the entire 40 year history, there I believe, eight shows uh, from the workshop. So we're not talking about every other year here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is... you know, one of the things that is really great about it is that that work gets seen by a lot more people. And another thing that's really great about it is that artists who've been dedicating, uh, you know, huge chunks of their lives to um, working in the laboratory that is off Broadway, where we try we try and do our best by our artists and pay them as much as they can, but it's nothing compared to what you make on a you know what what Aeneas Mitchell's royalty was at New York Theatre Workshop pales in comparison. And the same thing is true for actors, right? right. Um, you know the 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 that work allows them to return to us um, and um, continue working. So I think, yes, we're concerned about it for ourselves, but we're equally, if not more concerned about it for um, our artists and the audiences that we hope will continue to get to experience that work.
1: Yeah. And, well, first of all, what's the, you mentioned Sanctuary City, what is the plan with Sanctuary City? Or is it even possible to to, uh, think that far in advance? Do you hope to end up producing the world premiere of Sanctuary City at some point? Absolutely,
0: um, and and what that plan is, uh, we don't know exactly yet. I mean, I think we're 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 working as hard as we can to figure things out, but at the same time, a lot of it's going to depend on uh, things well outside of our control. Um, you know, we are but a small boat on a vast sea, right. um, and and we're trying to live in a little bit of a Zen place at the moment, and to say we're going to do everything we can to set ourselves up to be able to return to that. Uh, to that production, um and to open it and to open it in New York City and to give it uh, to you know, to make sure it gets the audience attention that it so so richly deserves. Uh, um, but we don't know exactly what those plans look like yet.
1: Yeah. What is the biggest thing that your theater uh, and maybe the industry overall sort of needs uh, in terms of support that you're not seeing or that you're worried about seeing what is what is the thing that you are sort of more most concerned about right now.
0: Well, I think there's sort of a, a near term and a longer term answer to that question. In the mm-hmm. near term, we all just need money, right We all just need the money to keep paying artists to keep paying um, staff members and to make sure that they're okay through all of this. Um, and you know uh, so too do a lot of small businesses right off broadway theaters are all small businesses and we're not in any different of a, uh, we're not in any different of a place. Um, except in that we only, only in the rarest of of circumstances do we generate surpluses. So the idea of, you know, taking out a loan that you're going to pay interest on is pretty scary for little off-Broadway companies. Um, And even if you could secure that kind of financing, and we're lucky we have a, we have a a strong partnership with our bankers. But, um, you know, even the idea of, of drawing on a line of credit, is scary in a moment like this when you're not sure if you're going to be running surpluses or deficits and more likely deficits for the next couple of years as the economy right. recovers. Um, so I think there's the, the short-term sort of, okay, how do we keep generating enough resource that we can keep the lights on? And then I think, you know, one of two things, and not that my crystal ball is better than anybody else's, but one of two things is going to happen when these... Uh, you know, shelter in place orders or, or whatever the, whatever the term term is in New York city, which is, which is not quite that they, they haven't quite right. gotten that far, um, right. or lifted either. This is going to do, um, magical things for people realizing that, you know, screens are great, but honestly, I want to be with other people. <laughs> right. Um, or it's going to be a slow climb back to getting people comfortable, um, getting back together in large groups. And I think both are I mean, I'm hopeful that it's the former, but I, I you know, if I wake up in the middle of the night, um, it's it's the latter. And and right. I think, you know, there are legitimate reasons that we're I mean, obviously there are legitimate public health reasons for the situation for taking the steps that we're in now. Um, and we wanna that that's gotta take priority over um getting together in a room. And 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 there will it will create some level of anxiety, I think. And I think it's how quickly that anxiety dissipates when it is actually safe to gather again.
1: Right. Well, here's uh, here's hoping that that goes sooner rather than later, because I, for one, am, I didn't have a chance to see Sanctuary City before it uh, got, went on hiatus, and, uh, but I have read it and I'm anxious to see it. So here's hoping it happens sooner rather than later. Um, thanks very much, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, joining me and taking the time to talk with us.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: That was New York Theatre Workshop's Jeremy Blocker and, before that, playwright Martina Mayoke on Sanctuary City and how artists and producing organizations alike are grappling with darkened theaters. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe and find past episodes there and on all the other pod places, including Spotify and on the Broadway Podcast Network which is a great place to find more food for your ears to help fill those long, theaterless nights. Next week, I talk to writer Emily Newberger, whose debut novel, A Tender Thing, is set in the golden age of Broadway. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance.